What we put in place just five months ago is beginning to bear fruit. So keep the faith. Keep the faith because we are going to move out of this. Hello and welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm Adam Davidson and I am terrified because I've been told huge thunderstorms are on their way here in New York. And I am Alex Bloomberg. Today is Wednesday, August 5th. That was Vice President Joe Biden. You heard at the top of the show talking about the stimulus package. Um, On the show today, we're going to talk about the power of the central bank and central bankers. Before we get to that, of course, as per tradition, today's Planet Money indicator. The indicator today is 0.17%. That is the effective federal funds rate for yesterday, August 4th. And Alex, this is not the fastest changing number in the world. I'm actually looking at the Fed's New York Fed's website, and it's been 0. 0.18, 0. 0.17, 0. 0.13, 0. 0.15 for the last several weeks and months. And that'll probably be where it'll be for another couple of weeks and months, probably. Now, you may be wondering, why, 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 oh, why are we talking about the federal funds rate? Alex, we're talking about the effective federal funds rate, and it's all right there in the title. Who would not want to talk about something called the effective federal funds rate? It just sounds exciting. Right. Uh, For those of you who aren't excited by the federal funds rate, we're talking about it because there's been some good economic news lately, and we like to make people feel miserable. Um, This number shows just how far our economy has to go before it can actually be called a healthy economy. Right. Now, the the main thing the Federal Reserve does to affect the economy, the main tool in their toolbox is they can change how much it costs banks to lend money to each other. When the economy is going great, remember, that used to happen every once mm-hmm. in a while, the Fed generally wants to slow down the growth, stop inflation from taking hold. And so they make it cost more for, say, Citibank to lend money to Bank of America. That slows down the movement of money through our economy and prevents inflation. And when the economy is slow, the Fed likes to make it very cheap for banks to borrow and lend money to each other. And that speeds up the movement of money and helps the economy grow. And since December of last year, we could have done this indicator any day since December of last year because the Fed has kept interest rates as close to zero as they can go, which means they are doing everything they can using every tool in their toolbox to get money flowing. It's the financial equivalent of keeping your foot pressed all the way down on the accelerator but still, the car isn't moving very quickly. In fact, it's going backwards. Right. <laughs> but <Yeah>. slower. <laughs> moving right. backwards slower. So what we've managed to do is we've got our foot fully pressed down on the accelerator, and the car is drifting more slowly backwards than it was before. Anyway. So lots of people are paying attention to the Fed in lots of different ways these days. The Obama administration wants to expand the power of the Fed to become the country's systemic risk regulator. But there are others who say, hey, look, the Fed should just focus on worrying about this Fed funds rate and monetary policy. Um, So today we are going to look back in time. We're going into the Wayback Machine because we want to look at a time when the Fed and other central banks did have a lot more on their plate. And we're going to talk about what can happen when the central banks of many countries make huge mistakes. Yes, we are going back to the Great Depression. Now, Adam, you spoke to Liaquet Ahmed who wrote the book, The Lords of Finance, all about a group of people who he calls the bankers that broke the world. Yeah, it's a, it, it is a great book. He rave reviews all around, all about how policy decisions made by central bankers not only caused the Great Depression, but made it far worse. 
most people often forget that 1929 occurred only 10 years after the most disastrous and expensive war in history up to that time, and that was the First World War. And the impact of the First World War was uh, to essentially bankrupt Europe. Uh, The big error in 1919 by the statesmen was uh, was the uh, was German reparations and uh, European war debts. Essentially, after the First World War, uh, Britain and France owed something like ten billion dollars to the U.S. Now, ten billion dollars then is the equivalent of about two trillion dollars today. And uh, Britain and France asked the U.S. to forgive these debts. The U.S. said no. Uh, So Britain and France demanded that Germany pay them reparations. So the First World War left a sort of an overhang of international debts, which proved to be a fault line in the world economy when the whole thing unraveled. So that's the first big policy error. And and are are you also calling a policy error the U.S.? frankly seems reasonable to, for a government to say, hey, you owe us a couple trillion bucks. You, you got to give it to us. Um, but you're calling that a, a, a policy error as well? Yeah. I mean, look, Britain and, Britain and France said we lost, you know, Britain lost a million men. France lost two million men. Uh, the U.S. joined the war very late. It just seemed to them basically uh, very small-minded of the U.S., to demand that they pay these debts after they had uh, sacrificed so much, you know, so much of their of the prime of their youth and manpower in order to fight Germany. They're feeling, hey, we were all in this together. We fought this war together. You, you, pro- you the U.S., provided money. We provided blood and tr- treasure. Um, so let's let's deal with the the end of it together. Exactly. All right. And and can we say the U.S. was I mean, it's one thing to, you know, with 2020 hindsight um, to look back and say, oh, OK, that turned out to be a big mistake. Just like, you know, maybe we should have, you know, handled the Al-Qaeda uh, in the 80s a little differently or what became Al-Qaeda a little differently. You can look back later and say, oh, boy, I wish I'd handled that differently. Or could you, you know, simultaneous to the events were, you know, could you reasonably say, hey, they are handling this dangerously badly? I think many people, including the hero of my book, Maynard Keynes, said they were handling this dangerously badly, largely because when someone owes a gigantic amount of money, you have to believe they can pay it back. And if they end up getting into terrible debt and they cannot pay it back, uh, then you spend an awful lot of time renegotiating how much they should pay back every month or every year. And it just consumes a lot of time. Uh, The proof of the pudding was that uh, none of these war debts were ever paid. The only country that ever paid its debts to the U.S. was poor little Finland. Okay, so so that's problem number one. What's problem number two? Okay, problem number two was to go back to the gold standard after the First World War. Uh, The gold standard was a system whereby central banks, the amount of currency that the central bank could print, Dollar bills and coins. Exactly. It was rigidly fixed by the amount of gold they had in their vaults. And uh, it it worked very well in the uh, period 
before the First World War as a way of controlling, uh, as a way of limiting the amount of currency that central banks could print as a way of controlling inflation. It obviously and, and I just want to say, you know, when I first heard about the gold standard, it sounded so primitive and, and silly, like from, from, I don't know, the Middle Ages or something. But there is some logic to it, right? I mean, that, that, that if you there, – there's, there's a huge – It puts, it puts the, it puts the uh, central bankers into a straitjacket. Right. The danger is that you tie your monetary and credit system to the vagaries of gold discoveries. So when there's a lot of gold discovered around the world, as there was in the 40, 1840s and 50s, uh, you actually get, a, some, you get some inflation. Um, uh, when there was a gold famine, uh, i.e. a dearth of discoveries, basically from 1870 to 1890, you actually got deflation. Prices gradually fell. So, so, so it, you said the problem was going back to the gold standard. They had been on it before World War One. They suspended it effectively during World War One, and then they said, "All right, let's just go back to where we were." Yeah, and countries always suspended it at a time of war because it seemed uh, it, it seemed too rigid a system when you know it was a matter of the country's life or death. Okay, so so the the debt burden that's easy for me to picture you. You, Europe's bankrupt. You force them to pay back debts they can't afford. They spend a decade just digging themselves further and further into a hole. It sounds like where I was in much of my 20s, I understand it. I can picture it. I don't really know how to picture getting back to the gold standard as a cause of the Great Depression. Can you help me draw, draw the connection? Sure. Um, the problem was that uh, the pound was went back to the gold standard at too high an exchange rate, and it was always in trouble, i.e. that people were always worried that, uh, that, uh, that investors and speculators would take their money out of pounds and put it into another currency. Um, and because the pound, uh, sterling, and London was the linchpin of the international financial system, uh, they were convinced that if they caused the pound to collapse or if they allowed the pound, these central bankers, when I say they, central bankers thought that if they allowed the pound to collapse, the whole international monetary system would collapse. So the governor of the Bank of England, Montague Norman, who was great friends with the governor of the New York Fed, which was the major arm of the uh, U.S. Central Bank, persuaded his friend Benjamin Strong, the governor of the New York Fed, to ease monetary policy in 1927 as a way of supporting the pound. And uh, they persuaded, um, uh, the, or Montague Norman persuaded Benjamin Strong to ease credit in the U.S. as a way of trying to support um, Europe and particularly the pound. And you can date the beginning of the stock market bubble almost from the date that the Fed eased in order to support the pound. Let's get to problem number three, which is the once the Great Depression is upon us. What What's the problem there? I mean, of course, the, the standard story that, that I think I grew up with is we had a problem. We had a terrible president. Then we got Roosevelt in. He called up John Maynard Keynes, who told him how to fix everything, and everything was fixed. 
Okay, well, uh, I'm going to sort of stop the story slightly earlier. Uh, The first year of the Great Depression was really the story of the sort of consequences of the bubble bursting. What happened then uh, was that the authorities um, took what was a very sick patient and applied exactly the wrong medicine and basically killed the patient. And they were like 18th century doctors who thought the cure for illness was to draw blood. Um, So what did they do? The first thing they did was they allowed the banking system to collapse. Um, And so hundreds of banks in the U.S. and also in Europe went under, um, and that caused a massive contraction in credit because if banks go under, they can't lend money. Um, So that was the first problem. The second problem was they thought that budget deficits were always a bad thing. Um, So they raised taxes. Uh, This was somewhat later in 1932, not quite so early. And the third problem, which is really linked to the gold standard, is they raised interest rates in the middle of the Great Depression. Um, And that was the sort of ultimate folly to raise interest rates in the middle of a great depre- of a depression and why they um, do that um, it was because the the rules of the gold standard said that if you're a central bank and you start losing gold reserves you're obliged to try to replenish those gold reserves and the only way they could think of at that time uh, was to raise interest rates to try to attract capital Uh, So there was a mad scramble around the world for all this limited gold in the middle of 1931. And so all these countries were competing for this limited amount of gold. To seduce investors to send their money to Germany or to France or wherever, rather than keep it in the USA, by saying, we'll give you more interest, we'll we'll, we'll pay you more. Exactly. And that, that basically killed the patient. Now, I should say, Ahmed says, we already know this central bank is nowhere near doing what, what that central I – mean, you know, the Fed now has a lot – there's a lot of criticism about various aspects. There's certainly a lot of people who – I'd say a majority of, of, of observers think that the Fed contributed to the bubble that then burst and, and created the crisis we're in. But I don't think uh, anybody – that I'm aware of is saying that they're as bad as the central banks were back then. Well, no, I mean, and you can definitely see why they're doing all the things they're doing because they're, they, they've, they've internalized those lessons. Ben Bernanke, the current chairman of the Federal Reserve, wrote a lot about those lessons, discovered a lot of the lessons himself. So it's very clear that, like, this is the that what they are doing is the exact opposite. They are they're deliberately, deliberately not making the mistakes that the people. Um, that the the Federal Reserve made in in the 1930s. Um, And their argument is that we right now are are reaping the rewards, that that what they have avoided is the Great Depression. Now, it's impossible to know. That's the problem with counterfactuals. You can't know. But that is, you know, when when you talk to folks at the Fed and, and the Treasury Department, that's what they are saying. They're saying, don't judge us that, you know, unemployment is still going up, that GDP is still going down, that the economy is still in bad shape. Don't look at that. Look at the fact that we did not cause a second 
truly great depression. Right. And when you actually think back to the crisis months, you know, when 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 there was that day when they were going to are they going to pass the bailout package? Are they not going to pass the bailout package? And the stock market crumbled and the and, and even when the credit markets were freezing and AIG was going to go under. And you you sort of think like if there had been the the 1930s Fed in place and they probably would have been like let them go. We got to worry about the gold standard. We're going to start raising rates right now. You can imagine that, like, that would have taken this horrible situation. You, I mean, I can't even imagine. Like, let AIG go, then everybody else falls down, and then it does seem like pretty clear that if that had happened, I mean, you know, you don't know, but it does seem like that would have been much worse than what we're right. right and now. certainly, if they had instead of the Fed funds rate being zero point eighteen percent, it was say eighteen <laughs> percent, right? <laughs> and they had just took a slow monetary uh, flow and, and and halted it, as happened back then, which is kind of shocking to think about. I mean, yeah, it really is when you th- when you see what was happening then, and you imagine t- the Fed taking all the exact opposite moves that the current Fed took. You, you, it does seem to it does really make it visceral. Like, oh yeah, I get, I can see how that would have led to the Great Depression. At the same time, who the planet money, you know, the holographic planet money of 80 years from now, um, interviewing, you know, looking who, back on us and looking chuckling. back and chuckling and all the stupid <laughs> mistakes that were made now. Right. And look at these idiots on planet money. They I know. Pl- anyway, in our unitards, and our smug <laughs> smiles. Forget about you, planet money of the future. <laughs> All We're right. not wearing unitards. I think the listeners should know that. No, you no, mean no, I'm talking future. about the planet money of the future. Right. I don't know where. That's just a cul-de-sac. Let's get out of here. <laughs> okay. All right. That's it, right? We're done. Yes, I think that does it for us today. Be sure to visit the blog, npr.org slash money, to see a great Planet Money video about how unemployment is affecting the taxi industry in New York. It's really great. And also, um, Caitlin has been so excited about this funny and sad picture sent in by listener Jared Chasso, who came home on Saturday night to find his entire garden had been stolen. We love getting those pictures. Keep on sending them, as well as your stories, your questions, to planetmoney at npr.org. I'm Adam Davidson. And I'm Alex Bloomberg. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.